of us are going to be continuing the great escape okay we've been walking our way through the book of exodus this is our 59th message in the book of exodus so we praise god for that uh this give you guys a little bit of a refresher on last week kind of where we were um message last week was called cleansed unto god okay um the lord instructed uh the lord's instructions shifted from his people back to his dwelling place and we saw that there was he talked about what's called the laver the laver is actually like a wash basin we talked about that laver we talked about the fact that it not only was a place that they would wash up it would reflect to them the what was dirty but it would also be a place where they would wash up the priests would so it pictured god in his supernatural truth through the word of god but it also pictured the lord himself on this morning we're going to look at some very interesting details that are found in the instructions as we look at the oil, the anointing oil that's going to be used. Uh, and this not only for the oil in regards to what it's going to do in regards to the men, but also the anointing of the tabernacle as well. And this message this morning is called a holy anointing. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for today. And uh, God, you know that my desire is, uh, Lord, that this message, Father, would come directly from you, not from me. And uh, Lord, as I labored over it and prayed over it, God, I know that you've shown and spoken to me. And I ask now, Lord, that you would speak through me. The words that I share would be the ones that you would choose, not the very ones that I would choose. God, if there'd be a way for me to disappear and just you to show up, God, I would certainly appreciate it. Uh, Lord, I don't feel adequate to do this, uh, what I'm doing, but Lord, I know that you are adequate. And God, I thank you so much for doing what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So in our study last week, we looked at that brazen altar. And I'm going to give you a little over that brass altar, that brass laver. We're going to go a little bit of just to kind of get us a refresher so it helps us lead into where we're going to be going into in the book of Exodus 3, verses 22. So we looked at the laver. We looked at the fact that it was made out of polished brass, right? It was made out of these mirrors that would be turned in by the women. This brass would be melted down and turned into the laver. It was ref- giving us an image or looking into the fact that it's a reflective quality. We looked at the function of the laver and the fact that it was there for the fact of cleansing, right? Cleansing and anything that would be unpleasing to God, right? Next, we looked at the laver, and it uh, was the last opportunity that the priests would have before they entered into the sanctuary. It was the stopgap measure between they left that brazen altar and they're working their way into the sanctuary. This was the last place they'd stop. And amazingly, we saw that dual purpose, right? It had a purpose in the fact that it could show them what was wrong in their life. It could show them what was dirty. And then at the same time, it would be the same place where they could wash up. So it had a dual purpose. We looked at the fact that the Bible, as Christians, we go to the Word of God. And what does the Word of God do? It reveals to us. It shows us. It basically calls us out, right? You read things in Scripture, and you go, man, I'm doing that wrong. Oops, right? So God calls us out and shows us what's wrong. Then we go to the very same source, back to the Word of God, and the Word of God actually shows us how to be cleansed, right? Then we also looked at the fact that Jesus is the source of cleansing for the lost world, right? When we don't know the Lord, we're on our own. We carry the filth of the world that we were born with or that we live with and the choices that we've made in life. Jesus said this uh, in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh to the Father but by me. He says, look, I am the only way, right? Because I understand every one of us, all of humanity at one point in time, will all face to God. Whether or not we believe in God or not does not matter. We will all face him one day. And what happened was Jesus actually positioned himself between the two of us. He positioned himself between man and and between God. And the Bible says in 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. He put himself in that position so that he could protect us from judgment, give us an opportunity to know him. So our Savior put himself between the world and eternity. And so we see that aspect of its design so that anyone that will come that wants to be cleansed, restored, or be forgiven, guess what they can be? John's, or Romans 10, 13 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, right? 
God says he will make them clean in the eyes of God, not because they're worthy, but because he's worthy, because he paid for us, right? So it, uh, the priests didn't cleanse themselves. We understood that if they went in there covered with the filth of the world, that the Bible says that they would die. So the same thing is true for us. If you and I spiritually are going to go before God and you've not made things right with God by through Christ Jesus and he's not paid the price for your sins, you stand before God filthy. And what will happen is the Bible says you will die. There is a spiritual death. So the laver pictures not only the Bible, but it also pictures Jesus. And as we go now into Exodus 30, verses 22 and 23, so we've been talking about filth, we've been talking about cleansing. Now it says in verse 22, Moreover the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take thou also unto thee principal spices of pure myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet cinnamon, half so much, even 250 shekels, and of sweet calamus, 250 shekels. So we look at that first one, myrrh, right? Myrrh shows up in the Old Testament 13 different times. And as it shows up in the Old Testament, it always shows up as a perfume. Traditionally, it's really linked to love a lot of times. But then when we see it in the New Testament, it only shows up three times. And what's interesting with the three times that it does show up, it's linked to death, right? If we look in the, in the wise men, when they initially show up, right, and they first meet Jesus, right? We know that this is not at his birth, even though you see that when you go to the, you know, you see the Christmas displays and the three wise men are there. That's not the case. Here's the birth. In Matthew 2, 11, it says this. And when they were come into the house, okay, they're not in a manger. They're not in a stable. And when they come into the house, they saw the young child, not a baby. With, his, with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him when they were, and they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And what we know about from our studies, in fact, that we understand that the gold is linked to the kingship of Christ. That's picturing his kingship. Then the frankincense is pointing to his priestly duties as the high priest. And then lastly, myrrh, which is something that was used in the embalming process when you were put in the ground, that myrrh was tied to the eventual death of our Lord. So myrrh will actually be mixed in with the wine that they're going to offer Jesus on the cross. In Mark 15, 23, it says, And they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. So in this myrrh, for the very last time we're going to see it, it's going to show up when Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night, and Jesus talked to him, and he says, You must be born again. And then Joseph of Arimathea, they came and they asked for the body of Christ. They took it down, and they're going to put this sweet-smelling myrrh. They're going to rub it on his body with some other ointments as well. So in John 19, 39, it says this, And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night, and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. So they would lay the body in the tomb, and they would rub it down with these, these incense and things like that. So we see this New Testament connection to death. And then here, the Lord says, the next thing they're supposed to get is cinnamon, right? Cinnamon. They collect it. It's going to be about, uh, you know, a decent amount of quantity. They're going to collect that cinnamon. Then they also says they're going to get what's called calamus. Now, calamus is a sweet smelling. And almost, if you take the smell of calamus, it actually smells like nutmeg, ginger, and cinnamon kind of combined. So we take the myrrh, which has got a sweet smell to it. We take the cinnamon, which has another sweet smell, this other calamus. Then now this, and what's interesting about calamus, calamus is actually for thousands of years, it's been one of the ingredients in perfume and still is today. It actually comes from a thing called sweet flag, which is kind of a marsh grass. Verse 24 says, and of cassia, 500 shekels after the shekel of the sanctuary and of oil, and of oil, olive, and hen. A hen is a quantity. A hen is actually about a gallon. Um, so we talked about this cassia. And what's interesting is cassia has a very similar smell to cinnamon, but it actually has also a smell a little bit like buttered popcorn. Who wouldn't love that? Dude, isn't that, you know when you go to the movie theater? It's one of those things you're like, I don't even, I'm not even hungry, but we got to get some. But 
And then you got to use the little, anyway, get the popcorn, get as much butter on there as possible. Um, so all these ingredients, they're essential, right, in pictures, in this picture of the, uh, the sweet-smelling oil. This perfume is going to be created. Now, what you and I could think about, now, the olive oil, as I said, it's about a gallon, a little bit more than a gallon. The, their goal was they were supposed to grind all this together and make it into a perfume. Verse 25 says this, And thou shalt make it an oil of holy ointment, an ointment compound after the art of the apothecary. An apothecary is like a perfumer. Okay, And it shall be an holy anointing oil. So the specific ingredients and the specific amounts, right? they are unique to this exclusive smell, which is exclusive for God's dwelling place. Today, you and I, if we thought about what this was and kind of how it's made, we might think of something like an essential oil, right? You have these different essential oils. This is a sweet-smelling oil that they're going to have. So what's interesting about the oil is oil in the Bible is always emblematic of the Holy Spirit. Right? It's tied to the Holy Spirit. It's also tied to the working of the Holy Spirit. So here in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 21 through 22, says this, Now he which establisheth us with you in Christ and hath anointed us is God. Right? So God anoints us. Who hath also sealed us and given us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Right? In the scripture, we see the works of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 61.1 says this, The Spirit of the Lord... The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prisons to them that are bound. And just as a side note, when we think about these people, it talks about someone, you know, in Isaiah here, he's talking about those that are broken. And what's interesting, Jesus is going to reference this very same scripture. He'll read this in the synagogue at one point in time. But what's interesting about it, these prisons, right? And so many times... Yeah, there are prisons, no doubt. There are people that are, that are being incarcerated, but there are a lot of us that live in prisons that we create on our own, right? They're emotional prisons, right? We have an anger that we've not let go of, right? And that anger keeps us captive. We have a bitterness that we've not let go of, and it keeps us captive. We have a pain or an unforgiveness, whatever it is. And these things captivate us, and they hold us, right? But what's amazing about these prisons is they don't have doors on them. We create them, and we have the choice to walk out, but many times we choose to stay there, and we hold on to our bitterness as if we let it go, somehow we're, uh, we're, we're giving up. But no, what God wants to do is he says, he, he says to preach the truth that they might be free, man, be free. God can free us. He can heal us. He can do anything. Problem is, most of us don't take him up on it. We want to hold on to these things. And I'm just telling you, as a person who carried bitterness for a lot of years, when you let it go, oh, my goodness, oh, my goodness, Your life suddenly goes from this rocky road to, oh, my word. And you have the sense of freedom. It's unbelievable. How much have you experienced forgiveness in your life, man? And it is absolutely, it is the most freeing in the world because you, we're the ones that are set free. The person that's forgiven doesn't even know, but, man, we're the ones that are set free. Anyway, that's for another message some other time. All right. But, so, Ephesians 1.13 says this, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and who also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. So this exclusive anointing oil, right, it pictures the Spirit and also pictures the power or the, or the, or the, or the working of God. And its sweet smell, right, it pictures the invisible presence of God, the invisible presence of the Spirit of God, right? We may not see it. But you ever walk into a room and somebody's just prayed, like, Febreze, or you got one of those air fresheners and somebody's kind of cranked up, you walk in... You're like, wow, okay. You may not be able to see it, but you know it's real, right? You know it's there. You can feel its presence, right? That's what this thing's all about. This is about showing God's, it's giving us a picture of God's invisible strength, right? Now, where are they going to get the ingredients? They're in the middle of nowhere. Remember, this is out in the middle of nowhere. They're in the middle of the wilderness. Where are they going to get these things? Remember back in Exodus 25, right? Way back there, 
God actually spoke. And he says this, speaking unto the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart, he shall take my offering. So he says, look, I want you to willingly give with the right heart, right? Because what happens is God's going to create this anointing oil, but it needs to come from pure motives. People that love him, people are giving it because they care for him, right? And Paul gives us an idea of what that kind of giving should look like when you and I give or when these people are giving. It says 2 Corinthians 9, 7, every man according as he hath purposed in his heart, so let him give not grudgingly or of necessity, but for God loveth a cheerful giver, right? We give because we love, right? We give a present at Christmas time, not because I'm going to get your present. We give it because, man, we want to see their face, right? When they open that gift, it's like, oh, that's one of the best parts. I don't know, some people love to receive gifts. Other people like to give gifts. I love to give gifts. I'm not so great on, on, on receiving them, but, man, I love watching people's faces when they open their present. I mean, you ever, some people like, you want to give it to them early? Anybody else guilty of that? You're like, you're like I don't, can you, we just open one on Christmas Eve? Just one. Come on. This is the one you want to open, by the way. Um, so, <laughs> and if we notice back there in verse 6, when it goes a little bit further, and we look at that Exodus 25, verse 2 talks about the fact that they're going to give the offering. And then in verse 6, it says this. This is what they're offering. It would be part of it. It says, for this is oil for the light, spices for anointing oil, and for sweet incense. So back here, God's telling them, look, you're going to take up the offering. And what this offering is going to be for is what I'm going to ask you to provide in the future. And what's interesting is all these cost, costly ingredients, guess who they came from? The Egyptians. God spoke to the heart of the Egyptians, and he had them give it to them. In Exodus 12, verses 35 and 36, this is when they're leaving Egypt, right? And the children of Israel did according to the, to the word of Moses, and they borrowed of the Egyptians jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Right? He says, look, he gave them, they said, look, they had a desire to help, so that they lent unto them such things as they required. And it says, and they spoiled the Egyptians. When it says spoil, that means that they took from them, they received from them. But notice it says, as they required. Now back in Exodus 3.22, when Jesus is, or whenever Moses is at the burning bush, right? God's going to tell him there at the burning bush, ye shall spoil the Egyptians. He says, look, this is coming. Then he tells them again, it's going to happen. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. And God provides for them exactly as they required. They did not know they were going to be making this anointing oil, but guess what? They had collected those ingredients for this oil and they had them in hand. So when God asked for it, guess what? They could freely give it. Guess what? God knew what they needed and guess what? He knows what we need. He knows exactly what we need. And we stress about so many things we don't need to stress about. Matthew 6, 31 through 33 says this, therefore take no thought saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or whither all shall we be clothed? Where am I, what am I, what am I eat? What am I going to drink? Where am I going to find my clothing? Verse 32, for after all these things do the Gentiles seek. He says, look, the world worries about these things. For your heavenly father knoweth that you have need of all these things. He already knows these things. He knows what you need. And then verse 33, he says, look, and if he knows you know these things, he's going to show you this is how you get them provided for you. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. He says, look, I'll take care of the things you're worried about, right? So just like everything else in the world, God provides it. And what he's asking the Israelites, he's asking, say, look, I want you to willingly give back to me what you've received. That's the exact same pattern that works in our lives today. As God gives to us, he says, look, give back to me that I might be able to do something with what you've been given. So, and the cool thing is, you know what? It's not even for God. This is for them. This anointing oil is the fact that God wants to have his presence known. He's trying to make them worthy to be in his presence. This is about consecrating them. Verse 26, we get into some more of the, the specifics. And thou shalt anoint the tabernacle of the congregation wherewith and the ark of the testimony. So first of all, they're going to do the entire building, the structure itself, right? Then it says, and then the ark, we know that's where the Ten Commandments are going to be. Again, that, remember, that ark is a picture of Christ. 
And then it says, and the table, and also his vessels and the candlesticks, and his vessels and the altar of incense. When it says the vessels, it's talking about spoons and cups and little things like that they're going to use for doing different parts. So the table, that's the showbread table that we studied in the past. That, again, is a picture of Christ. We looked at the golden lampstand, again, a picture of Christ, also a picture of the light. The light is a representation of the Holy Spirit. Then we looked at the altar of incense, which we studied a few weeks ago. That's related to the prayers of God's people, right? And this is verse 28, and the altar of burnt offerings, right? This is outside in the, in the outer court. This is referencing the sacrifice with all his vessels and the laver and his foot, picturing God's word, right? So and notice again that, that phrase where it says the laver and his foot. We talked about that last time. It's really interesting. God uses the word his. That exact same phrase shows up seven times in the Bible. Who knows what God's perfect number is? Seven. Isn't that kind of cool? Just neat how that's tied in there. Totally unrelated, just thought that was cool. But, and thou shalt sanctify them that they may be most holy. Whatsoever toucheth them shall be holy, right? Understanding that the anointing, right? This is a picture of the power of the Holy Spirit and its cleansing influence over sin. Now, the Lord understanding that, it says this, the first says, God says to consecrate his holy place. Remember, the tabernacle is the foundation of everything. It is a representation, a model of heaven and God's holiness. So then as we heard from these instructions, God says inside the tabernacle, they're supposed to consecrate and anoint those things next, all of the internal workings, all of the the furnishings, right? So imagine, right, the perfume has now been splashed over everything. They've gone around and they've sprinkled it all over everything. They've gone inside of the tabernacle. They've got it on everything, everywhere they possibly can. So now we've got this, this anointing oil, this sweet smell that's filling it, right? And as you walk by it, man, it's going to be wafting out of there. Now, practically, understand, they're making sacrifices every day, right? And if there's blood every day and animals being killed every day, there's probably a little bit of a smell, wouldn't you imagine, attached to that, right? Not to mention they're going to be in the wilderness, which is kind of stinky as it is, right? So what happens is that practically this actually is covering up the smells of the things around. But prophetically, it's an all-encompassing presence of the Spirit of God filling his house, right? Now, as one would approach the tabernacle, now you may realize there's thousands and thousands of tents, and you have the tabernacle sitting here in the center of this thing. It's going to stand out, but what's going to be amazing about it is the fact that as you approach it, guess what? As you're walking downwind from it, and you know because it's a unique smell, the only place that that smell is going to be smelled is there, you'll know that's the presence of God. I can smell God's house from here, man. Some people in this neighborhood, guess what? They go by this church and they go, you know what? I just have a feeling I should stop. You know why? I smell like God might be over there, right? How cool is that? And we get to be here. God is good, isn't he? So we already know that God's dwelling place of the tabernacle is supposed to be set apart based upon the way it looks, but guess what? Now it's supposed to be by its smell. It is, again, sanctified. It's set apart. Every corner, every nook, every cranny, every crevice, every piece of furniture is going to carry the scent of God's holiness. Remember what 1 Corinthians 6, uh, Paul says this. 1 Corinthians six nineteen. he says what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? Which is in you, which ye have of God, you're not your own. So we talk about the tabernacle has been consecrated. It's now been sprinkled all through with this incense. Now it's got this sweet smell. It's filled with the smell. And then we find out, guess what? You and I as believers, we're that same thing. We're that tabernacle. We're supposed to be filled with this sweet smell of God's presence, that Holy Spirit presence. So just like God's dwelling place is filled with the sweet aroma of God's holiness through the oil, every nook and cranny of our lives should smell of the sweet odor of God. Remember, as believers, he lives within us, right? God lives within me. Great Galatians 5, 22 and 25 says this, but the fruit of the Spirit, right? 
the evidence of the Spirit. That's what this is talking about. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Verse 24, and they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lust. That's the thing that's fighting against us, right? And this sweet smell should overcome those smells of the world. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. It should be evidenced in our life. Someone should look at my life and be able to tell, hey, you know what? That person's a Christian. There's evidence of their life. There's fruit in their life. As people smell the odor of our lives, give off. Is it sweet as the Spirit of God is evident in our lives? When we smell of our lives, when the smell of our lives reaches their nostrils, right? Or is the smell that they smell just smell like the world? Does it smell like our flesh? Do they just see us or do they see evidence of God? And this leads us to the last, <laughs> the last thing to be anointed, which is the wild card of the anointing process. This is humanity. Here we go. And thou shalt anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may minister unto me in the priest's office. Once you notice the word may, right? Use the word may, not will. It says that they may minister unto me. Guess what? Because there is a wild card element to humanity. You and I have what's called free will, right? It's easy to sanctify a place or a thing because once it's clean, unless otherwise influenced, it'll stay clean. Not so with people because we always seem to be so eager to dirty ourselves with the things of the world, right? We struggle with our fleshly lust. 1 John 2.16 says this, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. When we fall prey to these things, our eyes, our desires, these lusts in us, and we fall through, follow through with them, guess what? We fall right into the world. You see, God gave people this free will so that we could choose our own destiny. God allows it. Why does God give us free will? Because guess what? This whole thing is surrounded around love, and love cannot exist without free will. If I command you to love me, and you tell me you love me, that's not love, right? But if I give you free will, and you choose to love me, well, guess what? That's love, and it's God wants us to love him. He gives us free will to choose to do right or do wrong. Proverbs 16, 9 says, As a man's heart deviseth his way, a man's heart deviseth his way, but the Lord directeth his steps. God says, look, this is the way I want you to go, but now the, the heart is going to devise his way. And this is both a blessing, a blessing and a curse, right? It's a blessing and a curse because bottom line, we get to choose. I can choose to do right. Amen. But I can also choose to do wrong, right? This is a struggle. Is anybody else familiar with this struggle? <laughs> when you woke up this morning, guess what? It was introduced to you as soon as you woke up, as soon as you opened your eyes, right? So what this is, look, in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says this, there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. You all deal with this, is what he's saying. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape. He makes a way, doesn't mean you have to follow it, that ye may be able to bear it. He says he's going to give you a way out. What the Lord is saying here is that the temptation to sin is presented to us. We can either fall snare to it, and fall into it, or we can turn away from it, and we can take the way of escape that God offers. comes down to a choice, right? The anointing process for this priest, it says they may minister. This process is, this, they, have to, they have to choice. They have got to choose to submit, right? Remember that this anointing all pictured, this anointing oil is picturing the power of the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit, right? The same one, exactly the same one, is the one that you and I encountered at salvation. That same Spirit, when it came into me, man, 
when it changed my life, the night that I fell on my knees back in 2001, man, August 11, 2001, when my wife and I, we were slid off the couch, lost, broken, fell on our knees, and met the Lord Jesus Christ face to face. Not, couldn't see him, but our hearts could. And that spirit spoke to my heart, man. And we received him, and it changed our everything. Our countenance, guess what? When we went to God, it wasn't prideful. It was humble, right? When we come before God, we don't stride before him with pride and claim our gift of salvation. I'll take that, Lord. No. Man, we come before him broken and humble and reverential, right? The night we prayed, man, so many people, and I prayed with thousands of people for salvation, and what's amazing is how many people, their hearts just break. They just break. Just this past Sunday, we had people sitting in this service that while the message was being preached, I watched them. I watched them go from here and angry to here to a head down to when they lifted their head, tears just running down their face. That's the Spirit of God drawing people. He loves us, man. It takes a humble spirit. Humility. God responds to humility with restoration. 2 Chronicles 33, verses 12 through 13. This is King Manasseh. Manasseh has fallen into captivity. He's lost everything. It says, And when he was in affliction, he besought the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed unto him. He says, Look, you know what? God, I'm in a desperate place. I need you. And he was entreated of him and heard his supplication. God heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. He restored him back. And it says here, then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God, right? He was humble before God and God responded in restoration. Where humility brings restoration, guess what pride brings? Destruction. Always brings destruction. Pride is the root of all sin. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goeth before destruction and haughty spirit before a fall. The Holy Spirit of God wants to work in and through our lives, man. That's his desire, right? God wants to work in us, but we've got to have a humble heart. James 4, 4 verse 6 says this, But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Verse 10, it says this, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Right? You lift yourself up, there's a problem. God's going to humble you. But if you humble yourself, guess what God will do? He'll lift you up. Proverbs 29, 23 says this, A man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. So it's in the posture of humility that we must go to God, right? If we're to be used by God, if God's to work in us, if we're to experience his power, we've got to be humble. God wants to use these priests, right? He wants to use them for his glory, but they must first submit to the anointing so that that holy, the holy God can be, then make them worthy to serve him. These priests are supposed to smell exactly like God's house. If they've submitted themselves to the anointing, the two will be indiscernible because the very same thing is going to be put upon both of them. So this man, if you smelled him, you would think, you know what? He smells exactly like God's house. That's supposed to be us, right? We're supposed to be a representation of the Lord on this earth. And when people smell my life, guess what I should smell like? The Lord, right? But if if I've got my eyes off of God and I've got myself caught up in the world, guess what? The stink of that world is going to be all over me. But you know what? God can anoint us. Even when we mess up, God can still come back and restore us. I'm a living testimony of messing up terribly and having God fix you, and messing up terribly and having God fix you, and messing up terribly and God having fix you. Because guess what? He knows we're all a work, in a, bunch, a work in progress. You and I, we're a bunch of knuckleheads when it comes to living this life. None of us are on track doing the right thing every day. We make mistakes, and God says, you know what? I will help you to do better. This posture of humility. 
Verse 31, And thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel, saying, This may be an holy anointing oil unto me throughout your generations. Right? He says, look, this is going to be something that's not going to change. This exact same power, the same consecrating power is going to be exactly the same. The very same spirit, right, that's working in the tabernacle way back here is exactly the same spirit that's in us. It's the same spirit that we feel when we're in God's presence. Where It's the very same spirit that draws us to him. Verse 32, upon man's flesh shall it not be poured, neither shall you make any other like it. After the composition of it, it is holy, and it shall be holy unto you. So this sweet-smelling oil is consecrated for God and God's work only. This is the only place it is allowed. It's not to be a cologne that the priest is going to have on his skin. So when he walks around with everybody else, they're like, ooh, nice, that's nice, right? It's not made for, it's not created for that purpose, right? It's not supposed to be anything but there. It's going to be on their robes, right? And that's where it's going to stay. So this pleasant odor would be unique, right? It would, be the, it would only emanate from God's house and those that serve him. That's it. No one was to mimic it. No one was to try to create anything that was similar to it, right? You weren't supposed to try to create anything even smell remotely like it. Verse 33 says this, Whosoever compoundeth anything like it, or whosoever putteth any of, of it upon a stranger, shall even be cut off from his people. So God warns, right? He says, look, if there's any other versions of this, you're going to just change it ever so slightly, but you like the smell of the tabernacle, and you're going to go ahead and you're going to anoint yourself, or you're going to anoint your tent. That's not allowed, because there should be nothing that should be even remotely looking like it, but not being truly what it is. And what happens, we have fabrications in the world, right? He says also, he says, those people will be cut off. Just like creating an anointing oil similar to God's to mimic his holiness, there are people in our world today that try to mimic the power of the Holy Spirit, right? They do it in their flesh. They do it in their emotions. Right? There are churches and pastors who are not only claiming his presence where he is not, but guess what? They are claiming his power in doing things that can't be found in the Bible or actually are contrary to things that we find in Scripture. So what we got to do is say, look, you know, I've got to pay attention, right? I've got to notice. The Bible says, try the spirits, right, that they be of God. Because guess what? There is a spirit of Antichrist that lives in the world. And guess what he does? He mimics God, Right? Because you have Christ and you have the Antichrist. Guess who he looks like? Christ, right? So guess what? There are things in the world that look like the Holy Spirit, but guess what? They're not. They're not the Holy Spirit, right? So we have these issues, right? Think about this. You know, there's, 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 pre, there's pastors where they will slay the people in the Spirit. I slay you in the Spirit. And the preacher goes, and everybody falls back. Whoo, slain in the Spirit. Or they heal them, right? They go up and they put their hand on their head and they go, oh, you are healed. And they fall back. I want you to, t- to go study your Bible, and you find one person in the Bible who submits to God by falling backwards. They don't exist. Everyone who falls backward is demonic. Everyone who falls, falls backwards is someone who stands in opposition to God, right? Remember when the soldiers came to get Jesus, and they said, we're looking for Jesus, and he says, I am he? What happened to all of them? They fell back, and again, and again, and again, and again, falling backwards is not a thing that God does. You fall forward in reverence to God. Everyone who falls in reverence to God is like this on their face, it talks about, not on their back. Holy laughter, man. There's preachers, there's church out there where they go, I'm going to lay you on holy laughter. And everybody goes, the whole place erupts and everybody starts laughing and getting crazy. And people go, man, you feel the spirit? You feel the spirit? Oh, man, I felt the spirit. It's amazing. Right? Oh, they're all speaking in tongues. All this craziness going on. Nobody has any idea what's going on. Just craziness, right? 
That's not of God. God is a, not a God of confusion, right? We know who is the enemy, man. So we got to be careful. Matthew 7, 20 through 23 says this, Wherefore, by their fruits, ye shall know them. Right? We talked about the fruits of the Spirit. By their fruits, ye shall know them. What does their life reveal? Look at this. Verse 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. These are people that are going, hey, hey, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. You know me. I love God. It says, not, one, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven, he that does what this word says, not what they choose out of their emotions, not of their own free will, verse, verse number 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Have we not done amazing things? And it says, and in thy name have cast out devils. I mean, that's powerful stuff, man. We're feeling in the demonic world. We're doing all these amazing things. And in thy name, done many wonderful works. We've had people sit in awe in service or watch on TV and just be like, wow, do you see what they've done? Check it out. Verse 23. Then will I profess unto them. This is, this is all, this is Jesus saying this. This is not someone, this is Jesus. He says, he says and then I will say, profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Look at the last line. Ye that work iniquity. You believed you were doing what was godly. In reality, you were serving Satan. Because guess what? It smelled close enough to the Holy Spirit that you bought. You believed it. And there are people that are falling into these false religions, and guess what? They don't have a clue. They are sincere, but they are sincerely wrong. And God says, look, there is only one. And that's why there's not supposed to be a facsimile or a copy of the Spirit, man. There is one and one alone. Or as our Lord says here, check this out in 2 Timothy 3, 5. This is having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, right? And the last part of that verse in 2 Timothy 3, 5 says, from such, turn away, right? And as the, as the Bible says and Jesus says, or as, as the Lord says up here in verse 33, he will cut them off, cut them off. Let me just tell you what, there is a truth, right? The, the Spirit of God will never, ever, ever contradict the Word of God. Never, ever. They are always in perfect unison. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they are one. And so much of what is done in the name of God and in His Spirit are fabrications of humanity. They are the creations of men, passed off as the work of God, copies of the Spirit. If we want to know if the Spirit of God is working, if He's really working, guess what He does? He brings conviction. If you go to church and when you leave there's no conviction... You're like, man, that was awesome. Was that a good time or what? Let's high five in the parking lot. Yeah. But there's no change. There's no conviction in your heart. We studied last week, right? We talked about this. 2 Timothy 3.16 talked about the power of the way the word of God works. It says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. This is for teaching, for reproof. That means to go, hey, stop what you're doing. For correction, this is what you should be doing. For instruction in righteousness, this is how you do it. So the Bible says, look, you know what? If God's working in your life, he's convicting you to make changes. He's trying to refine you. God's desire is that we be the best we can be, right? That's every time we deal with him, when the Spirit deals with us. Yes, he can certainly feel the fulfillment of God, but guess what? It's always going to be attached to something that God's trying to help us to grow in, right? It's the Spirit that reveals spiritual truth. So without the anointing of the Spirit, guess what? The Word can't change us. 1 Corinthians 2, 12-14 says this, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. 
which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man, look at this, the man who does not, the person who does not know the Lord, the person who does not have God, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. He cannot hear from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. He sits back and judges God. Same way I was the night I got saved. I'm sitting like this. Mm-hmm, Bible guy, let's get this done. Got things to do. Let's get it done. Come on. But as God started to deal with my heart, I went from sitting back to being like, wow. And God drew me through his spirit, right? The natural man is saying, receive not the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. God says the spirit's the one that will show him. And if you don't possess the spirit, then guess what? Then God can't show you, but he can draw you to repentance. He can draw you to salvation. God's truth is for God's people. Romans 8, 9 says this, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so, be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. If you don't have the spirit within you, if you've not received Christ as your savior, he will dwell with you. Once you get saved, he moves into you and he will never, ever leave. It becomes a part of who you are, the indwelling Holy Spirit. God's desire is for all of humanity to be his. And guess what? To smell of his holiness, right? When you get saved, man, that anointing, that spirit fills you, man. You are baptized in the spirit of God. You're anointed in the spirit of God, right? Now, God's desire for all of us to have that. Why? Because he loves us, right? As his children, does our life smell of God's anointing, right? Does it give off the fruit of the Spirit? And because of the fruit, that's the fruit of the Spirit and the Spirit that lives within us, is it evident in our life? If people look at us, is it clear to say, man, you know what? They just, there's something different about them. Something about the way they handle themselves. I, they didn't even say anything, but there's just something there that I can't even explain. It's like when you go to foreign countries and you meet people that are saved. You meet Christians, and there's an instant kinship. Because guess what? We have the same Father. We have the same Spirit living with us. And there's an instant sense of like, man, you know what? A connection. And you probably all experience that. When you run into somebody who's a Christian, there's an interesting connection that happens there. But then we think about this. Or if we think about the smell that gives off. Do we stink of the world? Right? Do we stink of our flesh? When people look at us, what do they see? Do they see fruit of the Spirit or the fruit of our flesh? If, you're not, if you've not received the Spirit of God by faith and accepted the Lord as your Savior, then you're not His. The Bible says you're not His. And the whole thing is, that smell that your life gives off as a lost person, it's your flesh. Not because you're a terrible person. Just because, guess what? The sweetness doesn't come from humanity you and I can't manufacture it. I can't fake it. I can't pretend that I'm holy because that's what I can't be holy. I'm born into sin. And guess what? So are you. The Bible says for all of sin to come short of the glory of God. We're all in the same problem. So when someone looks into my life and I'm a lost person, guess what I reveal? I reveal a lost person. That's just who I am. And I have no choice. And no matter how hard I try, I can't get rid of that. But what's beautiful is the fact when God comes into us, he can supernaturally make us into something that we are not. He can take us an empty vessel and he can fill us with the spirit of God. And he can use you to do things that you never dreamed possible. He can change your wants and your desires and shift where you are in your life and use you for something that's so much greater than what you think you're here for. We think we're here to live a good life, to be happy, to be fulfilled and all these things. And there's nothing wrong with those things. But bottom line is you're not here for that. You're here to bring glory to God. And when you do that, guess what he does? He fulfills you. 
He uses your life in a way that just absolutely blows your mind. No joke, guys. 18 years ago, the day that we got saved, if my wife had said, guess what, honey? You're going to pastor a church. I'd be like, I had never sat in church my entire life at 34 years old. And she didn't, I mean, she had no dream of this. I had, this is not our expectation. This is what we didn't want what we have planned. But I have no doubt at all that I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. And if you'll just surrender to what he has for you, man, he can fulfill you like you would not dream. Not for your self-fulfillment, just for the fact that you're now in this fellowship with God that's so sweet and so beautiful. So what happens if you're that person and you say, you know what, I don't have the spirit of God. And if people look at my life, not because I'm bad, but guess what? My, I just smell of the flesh. I just smell of the world. That's all you're going to see in me. But the good news is, man, that God loves you. <laughs> and right where you are, he wants to make a change. If we'll submit ourselves to him, right? Receive the gift of salvation, right? He can make the aroma of our life, man, the smell that used to stink, the smell that used to smell of all the sacrifices and all the death and all the, the wilderness, right? Because guess what? The Israelites are going through the wilderness. And guess what? As, as people within living this life, guess where you are? You're in the wilderness. And all the stink of the wilderness is all over us. But boy, oh boy, you can walk up and be anointed with that oil. Woo! And all the stink that you've been carrying all those years can just be eliminated. And then when someone smells you, they're downwind. Man, you smell that? smells sweet. Not because you're anything better, only because you've been anointed by something special. God, in that moment of faith, when you receive him and you submit yourself to him, you can receive a holy anointing. If you're a child of God today and if you've received him, guess what? You have received that anointing. But that doesn't mean that it's always going to smell sweet. Because guess what? If you let the world get too much, you can overpower that spirit with the world. If that's the case with you, Let's get rid of these things of the world. Let's anoint ourselves to God. Let's submit ourselves to God and let him work in us. Let that spirit work through us, change us and make us better. Help us make this life be filled with the sweet smell of God. And if you're not, and you're here today, you say, look, you know what? I'm not a Christian. Hey, I'm not here to sell you anything. I'm here to tell you that there's a way out of the mess that you're in, wherever you are. If you're online, you're watching this recorded, whatever. There was a day when I made a choice. There was a day when I realized that on my own, I was in dire trouble and I did not have a chance of saving myself. It was impossible. But I realized the fact that God was real and one day I was going to face him. And if I looked at my life, I realized I had all kinds of issues that I needed to deal with. And there was a God who wanted to forgive me, who loved me in spite of myself. And it's the same God, the same spirit way back here thousands of years ago is the very same spirit that wants to come into you today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for today. Thank you for the spirit of God, for the word of God. Thank you for your power, God, for your truth. And Lord, I pray, Father, for us right now as a body that we might, Lord Jesus, to be constantly anointing ourselves, Father, getting into that spirit through the word, Lord, feeding ourselves, stripping away the things of this world that are trying to cover up the smell of God. And Lord, I pray, God, that you'll help us, Lord, to be surrendered to your perfect and beautiful will, that you might use these lives to speak into the lives of others that they might just see us and notice a difference. If you're here today and you've, you've never received Christ, you're like I was, just lost, never been to church. Maybe you're here and you say, you know what? I don't know God, but I want to. The good news is he wants to know you. 
No matter who you are, no matter how broken you may be, no matter what pain you have, whatever loss you have, whatever injury you have, whatever issues you're dealing with, God says, look, I love you right where you are. And I'm going to receive you exactly as you are. He didn't go to the cross to pay for the sins of one person. He went to pay for the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He's calling out right now to you. If you're his child, submit yourself to him. If you're not his child, surrender your will to his. Because if you could say, you know what, hey, I believe in God. Well, guess what, guys? The devil believes in God. He does not doubt his presence. In fact, he's walked up and talked to God face to face. He knows God's real. He believes in God. It's not about believing God exists. It's about surrendering our will to his. And if we'll surrender our will to God and we'll trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, believing that he is who he says that he is, he has the power to save us, the fact that he died on the cross for our sins because you and I could not pay the price. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's not a magical prayer. It's not a, it's not a ceremony. It's a matter of the heart. The Bible says, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made in salvation. It is a matter of the heart, just like giving. This is a matter of giving our heart to God. And the wonderful thing is he's waiting with his arms wide open, with love in his eyes, saying, I will pay for you, and I will redeem you, and I will forgive you. So with our heads bowed, with our eyes closed, if you want to receive Christ as your Savior, there's not going to be a magical ceremony, nothing like that. What I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you to pray. And this is going to be, I'm going to lead you in prayer. I'll help you. But it's not a matter of the words. The words will do nothing for you. If it's just words, forget it. Don't do it. But if it's a matter of your heart, if your heart is willing to submit to God and you say, look, I want to receive Christ as my Savior. In this prayer right here, you can open your heart to God and guess what? He will hear you and he will respond and he will save you. So their heads bowed with their eyes closed. If you want to receive Christ as your Savior, I'm not going to ask you to pray out loud. I'm going to ask you to pray in your heart and in your mind. This is an opportunity for you to talk to him. It's not the words, remember. It's your heart. If you'll submit to him, He'll save you. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, repeat, if, repeat after me if you want to receive Christ as your Savior. Dear Father, I know that I'm a sinner and I am so sorry for all that I've done wrong. I understand that you love me and I believe that you would save me if I asked you. In this very second, Lord, I'm asking you with my whole heart to come into my life to forgive me of my sins and to save my soul. Lord, by faith, I have received you as my Savior. I will see you in heaven one day. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.